0: you're listening to an mpavilion podcast conversations about design and the world we live in for more visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts
1: I'd like to start by acknowledging the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors and their elders past and present. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands of the people who are listening into this today as an audio. And I'd just like to say a personal thank you for looking after this country since the dream time. When we gather for events like this, I think it's also important to take note of the context. The impact of climate change is here. The solutions to fixing it are accelerating, but need to happen faster. So as we gather for these kind of discussions, it's important to note that the actions that you take from them matter, and they matter for us here and now, but also for future generations and for other species. So I'd like to invite you to hold that lightly as we talk tonight. Time, through the lens of some cultures, has been defined by the materials we use and how we use them. The Stone Age, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, Materials have shaped our culture and our traditions, but they've also shaped us physically and psychologically. I wonder a thousand years from now, what the materials that we use and how we use them, what that will say about us. My name is Laura Hamilton O'Hara and I have the great pleasure of being your host for tonight. Um, I'm the CEO of the Living Future Institute of Australia and we work at the edge of regenerative design using tools such as the Living Building Challenge. We believe that every act of design and construction can make the world a better place. I'm really pleased to be here um, as your host and well done to all of you for getting here um, on time in this weather so just, I'd love to just invite you just to take a moment to, to be here, to land. Some of you might have rushed here from work. You've got here all kind of sweaty and, and kind of wondering if you're going to get here on time. Some of you were here like long before the speakers got here. So I just invite you to take this moment now just to really be here before this discussion gets underway. And let me tell you, you are in for a treat. Um, I am joined by an absolutely delightful panel of human beings, um, and to kind of kick us off, um, I'd love to invite each of them to introduce themselves and just say a little bit about, you know, how the work that they do fits into our topic tonight. So I might start with you, Hannah.
2: Sure. Thank you, Laura and thanks for having me everyone. My name is Hannah Morton, I'm an Associate Director at Kundal. I've been a sustainability consultant there for over 17 years, but I really got passionate about circular economy and materials about 10 years ago, working on a living building challenge project actually. Um, and I was tasked with reviewing hundreds of materials going into that project and making sure that they were safe and compliant for use. And just noticing the prevalence of toxic chemicals in our building material supply chain still today, as well as a lack of transparency around where the ingredients of these materials and products came from and what was in them. And that I found really quite quite frightening considering that these are standard materials that are going into all of our buildings um, still today. So um, since then, I've, I've just been really, really interested in materials, waste and the circular economy.
0: Hi, my name is Kyungju Jeon. Um, I'm a Program Director for Spatial Design at Monash University. Uh, also, I'm a Product Designer. I have uh, my practice, little wonder. Um, I am a material person. I'm interested in all kinds of materials, including um, ceramics to fog, uh, sunlight to algae, uh, E. coli to textiles. Um, but recently, I have been interested in working with... Um, uh, alive materials, such as algae and, and, and uh, mycelium, um, my research is focused more on uh, the relation, uh, relationship between materials, environment, and the
3: maker, and, uh, uh, and people. Hi, my name is Suzette Jackson. I'm a designer and sustainability strategist, uh, and I work with K5 Furniture as a, the sustainability and circularity lead. Uh, K5 Furniture is a furniture business here in Melbourne based in Australia that works with regenerative materials, um, waste materials and uses both global and local manufacturers and supply chains. Uh, Most recently we've done some work in a design collaboration with Monash University in Guangzhou in regards to mycelium project uh, design studio with students. It's been uh, very exciting and, and a an additional piece of research that has been added into the fabrics and the materials and fibres, textile design that we use.
4: Hi, everyone. Um, It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, I feel a cool breeze is coming in, which is very nice. after a hot day. Um, I'm a principal at NH Architecture. um, I'm heading up the... Um, environmental Leadership Group and uh, the Regenerative Design for NH, and um, I've been working hard in the last couple of years to sort of bring the systems into place. And um, Hannah you just mentioned the Berbick Brickworks and uh, the the challenges of how to implement some of those initiatives and getting materials signed off and and certified. So I'm very keen in that area of of I'm I'm an impatient person, so I also pace myself every now and then, but it's bringing those systems into place <laughs> that make these things happen. That's my my agenda.
1: Thanks, everybody. Um, I love that you're all coming from different perspectives, so I think we're going to have a really rich conversation um, this evening. How it's going to work is we're going to have a, a couple of questions across the panel and, and have a bit of a chat, but then after that, we're going to do a bit of Q&A with the audience. So if during the conversation you, you think of a burning question, take note of it. Um, there definitely will be an opportunity for you to ask questions. All right. So at the beginning of this, um, I really framed the question around time. And, and if you were all to take a bit of a long view of time, how does the circular economy sort of fit into that and, and what role does it have to play? Happy to
3: start with anyone. <laughs> um, So circular economy for me is a bit of an evolution from the sustainability of the 70s, 1970s onwards where globally we had the Millennium Development Goals, we've since had the Sustainable Development Goals, we've had COPs, we've had a lot of work going on in regards to sustainability. We've had a lot of investment in tech, in weaponry, um, and in health and well-being, but we have not invested in the actual product design, the material inputs and outputs, and the toxicity and negative impacts that we have from our product designs, whether it's from something as simple as food or something as complex as buildings, so everything in between as well. And So, I see, for us, it's too little too late in a lot of ways, but... um, I think the resources are there. The solutions are there, the resources are there. The will is often there individually. The will has to be there in governments and big business. And so you know, it's great to see some businesses leading the way, but I think more storytelling, more conversations around how that is done and how we can share that knowledge and how we can do it together is highly important.
0: If I speak from the designer's point of view, Um, the time, I guess I'll have to bring up the issue of control in uh, discussing time because uh, when we think of the conventional materials like such as plastic, steel, glass, ceramics they last for a long, long, long time they're meant to last forever Um, when you work with uh, living materials such as algae or... Uh, mycelium, let's focus on mycelium, they're growing every minute, every second. And so you really have to sort of understand the material's uh, duration, their, their temporality. Um, and so that it, y- somehow I have to shift my mindset as a designer, how to approach the material and making of it. At the same time, uh, I cannot avoid thinking about how these products would be used in real life because the carpets, the curtains, the, the painting on the wall, you don't really see the change despite that they change little bit by bit by UV and the humidity. Uh, it may take years to change. You get sick of it before it you know you see the changes. However, mycelium, if it's untreated and leave it as a natural as it is, the change of surface can take uh, days, or weeks, or months. So that's a challenging thing, that if we are talking about um, producing um, everyday products out of these noble material, living material, how do we embrace this um, temporality of it, and understand that that's actually valuable, and that's
1: actually uh, the beauty of what we have. I think one of the things we talked about when we were prepping this discussion was um, the time value of carbon as well, sort of uh, that, you know, the longer you have something, the less embodied carbon, you know, that there is. So um, I'd love to, I guess, just building on that conversation here from both of you guys, like what are some of your thoughts around time and... Well,
4: I think me growing up in Austria around castles and buildings that were sort of built for centuries and to last, And coming to Australia, it was a a mind-blowing experience, especially going to Queensland, where um, when you drive on the highway, you see these yards of houses that you basically pick up and put somewhere else. And I wondered if that is actually one of the most established circular economy examples we have in Australia. (laughs) They are very lightweight. They are light touch, as um, one of, you know terms for, for Australian architecture, and and then uh, the next step and putting sort of the, the time scale of 1,000 years, 500 years, how long do you build a home, is it 50 years, is it 30 years? I'm wondering, looking forward with the idea of, um, I guess, our climate uh, changing and uh, the temperatures, um, it was actually a big topic at the Sustainability Summit Uh if we're able to sustain buildings that are breathable um, versus buildings that are passive house standard, which means they're sealed and mechanically ventilated. So there's a a technical evolution coming along and I have a feeling that they somehow might meet. So um, I'm just bringing up the topic of of modularity or modular buildings that can be picked up but can also potentially be as sealed or passive house proof, Um, keen to hear but uh, that's sort of um, a take on time scale versus light and uh, deep investment in infrastructure or insulation or building into the ground etc
2: I'm glad you started with with time because uh, in well, I work in the in the built environment and there the most circular thing you can do is reuse an existing building and build for the long term. Like you mentioned in Europe, that's fairly standard and in Australia, not so much. Um, And trying to encourage designers to design buildings that will last and can be adapted for different uses and can be easily refurbished in future for for the same or different uses. And that can be disassembled at the end of their life. But that's not the, the goal. The goal is for the buildings to last hundreds of years which is almost unheard of I think in Australian design and there's a few examples of buildings like that have been designed like that like the Sydney Opera House for example but um, very uncommon to have these days a design life of more than let's say 60 60 years um, which you know I think looking back could be viewed as extremely wasteful and in fact looking back in a thousand years time at the way that we're behaving now could be considered uh, extraordinarily wasteful um, in the way that we're designing. So I'm looking forward to seeing some positive change happen. And I think now's, now's the time.
1: Am I might um, narrow in to Suzette and Quanju. Um, it's hard to go to any kind of sustainability conference now and not see circularity, circular economy, circular materials on the run sheet. Um, it's a very timely conversation. Um, you know, why? Why is this moment calling for circularity in such a loud
3: voice? Thanks. Uh, So, uh, it's interesting. It's developed over time and we are seeing it become more and more popular and, you know, the language around it is growing and becoming more common knowledge, which is fantastic. But what we also see is that there's a huge push in regards to health and wellbeing and social impact and positive social impacts globally. And a lot of that's been focused around the health and wellbeing industry. And I think we're now seeing a bit more of a shift of that to our products. So circularity is really around not just uh, creating positive impacts for your materials use and, the you know, designing waste out of it, but it's also around creating positive impacts for your community, and I think that has been picked up and uh, and being driven as well, because there's so much we can do, and it's really around bringing it back to the local designers and makers, and it's also about creating patterns for everyday people to do things themselves, like not needing to have to go and buy it from Ikea or whatever. So it's about creating something that we can share the knowledge of and the capacity to build it, and it's simple enough that people can take it on themselves and do that for themselves.
0: I think maybe two ways to look at it. that One is the, the sustainability or sustainable design that we started long ago hasn't been succeeded, <laughs> we're not going anywhere. And we realize that, uh, that we're kind of have a very narrow, um, minded view of the world, in order to achieve sustainability, we actually have to tap into uh, uh, much wider, interconnected issues. Um, th- hence, the uh, UN um, Sustainability Goals touches upon uh, a lot of different things. Um, not just the materials uh, or waste, but also equity issue, gender issue, um, uh, um, uh, education, children. All that has to be combined together. So we, we learn from mistake that now um, maybe, maybe one way to think about it is uh, learning from nature. The nature is completely circular and doesn't generate any waste. And also the other perhaps influence is probably the development of technology, the bio, uh, particularly biotechnology, that. Um, you know, in states, for example, anyone can order a DNA kit and uh, alter the DNA of your dog and change them to be something else, and and um, it's very accessible. It's affordable. Um, not not every country, however, um, and there's uh, so many uh, different sort of. Um, invention of materials based on biomaterials are coming out. Look at the material libraries, there are so many of them worldwide. Uh, The sad thing though is that we have billions of different sort of uh, material that supposed to be sustainable yet, where are we? (laughs) Um.
1: Can you say a bit more about the material libraries? That's super intriguing.
0: Uh, There has been some material libraries, uh, um, like material connections, or materia, that sort of things in Europe, and and, uh, also United States, and then that expanded to Asian countries as well. And they service um, the uh, creatives, such as architects, designers, and also um, uh, corporations, to find the best material uh, to make their newest product. And uh, since the biomaterials are invented uh, based on, for example, kombucha, um, algae, and mycelium, and bioplastics, that they start to embrace all these materials, and they're all available uh, to anyone. Anyone can access and find out uh, the capacities and the the environmental impact of each material that can cause. um, I'm actually going tangent, aren't we? Are we? <laughs> a little bit, but I was just so curious throw, what that was.
4: Could, could I throw a question? Yeah. I, yeah. I was just wondering, what's the lifespan of mycelium?
0: Uh, that's, um, I don't think I can give you one answer to Sorry, that.
4: Sorry, don't mean to be me
0: this <laughs> Is there anyone who knows what mycelium is in the audience? Yes, a lot of you. Okay, great. So I don't have to explain too much about it. It's basically the root structure of the mushroom. Mushroom is the fruit of the mycelium. And, and mycelium basically is, is um, it, they grow and hold all the substrate. So they kind of uh, um, act as, a, as, a, as some sort of um, uh, glue of all the substrate. Um, so depending on the substrate, uh, substrate is any kind of cellulose-based material that probably the mycelium performs differently and also the longevity uh, is different. But when you talk about longevity, is it about the uh, strength or is it about color, is it about the, the usage? Um, all depends. But but the, the, the best part about it is that you can throw it in the garden and then it does not uh, harm the environment at all. And I find that the slugs love
1: it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, I might continue on that question and sort of build on it. It's very timely in terms of conferences and talks and things like that, but are you getting asked from clients and is that kind of translating into actual questions on a real level?
2: I'll go first if you like. Not as much as I would like or might expect, given the amount of attention that circularity is getting now in the media and in the industry. Um, It's normally something that I would need to put forward to clients and encourage them to take action on circularity, just as you would or they might already be doing with carbon and and, um, nature and health and wellbeing. Um, But, you know, obviously it's been circularity and, and those principles have been around for decades and maybe under different names like industrial ecology or biomimicry and those sorts of things. But I feel like it's really evolved now in, um, <clears throat> in terms of, um, I guess, public awareness for one, but also uh, education amongst industry professionals and uh, also attention in the media and, and regulation so that there's a lot of momentum at the moment and I would hate to see us lose that. Uh, I think we really need to basically make sure that we take action now um, while there's so much attention on the topic.
4: I'm thinking there is, there's a lot of talk about new materials and, and how they can become more um, regenerative and, and more um, mm. integratable in our environment. Um, There's probably the other side of the spectrum, which is the existing materials, and um, we're having interesting conversations. I think um, uh, last week there was a talk um, with um, Rob Neville. He's from Revival Projects, and they have started looking at um, salvaging uh, materials. So um, we are interested in um, starting to look at sites when we start a project and we know that the critical moment of making a decision if we are ambitious about our environmental initiatives happens right at the start. So that's where you often miss the boat or not, or you jump on it. Um, and in in looking at sites from the beginning, looking at um, maybe calling something like a demolition plan, something like an audit plan, so... That could even extend to um, much more interesting outcomes also for indigenous engagement, where we look at it holistically and work with the materials that are on site, that includes carbon footprint tracking, that includes, um, I guess, a feasibility that needs to happen also. And I feel that the the circularity of of using existing materials is also a a component that can be very um, beneficial And it's actually quite exciting.
3: Essential, actually. Yeah. I um, just want to add that there's... I think people get stuck on the word circularity and or regenerative and then don't know where else to go with it, but being that circularity is about not just the materials but the design processes and about how we do things and using both emerging bio-based materials as well as upcycling and existing waste into our materials. There's two components there in regards to the materials and then there's a whole range of components and complexity in regards to how we apply these design processes and how we build them into our operations as well. So it's, you know, a gamut of issues. I think that there's also... um, a common misunderstanding that there is not many regenerative materials being used in products already. I mean, we've got cork, we've got hemp, you know, we've got fishing line being upcycled and being used in in place of, you know, common plastics. Um, We've got a whole range of materials, waste materials, metal products, um, you know, hospital waste, toys, a whole range of things that are being used already and upcycled into products. It's just, I think, lack of awareness potentially or, you know, we don't see, we, we just see the finished products and we don't think to actually dig down and understand what all those components are made of. So, I think it's a bit of education, a bit of questioning, a bit of conscious consumption from people as well.
1: So, in summary, a lot of things are already... Ooh. <laughs> it's not a sustainability event unless water bottles and things are falling over. Um, <laughs> so, in summary, a lot of thing, good things are already happening. Um, we should focus on materials that already exist, um, not just the ones that are emerging, there's, uh, even though they're exciting. And it's not just about the material, the process is just as important as well. Brilliant. So I might jump to Hannah and Martin and going back to those people looking back a thousand years from now, you know, with any, <laughs> with any good, you know, invention, there's often cautionary tales. Um, and I think those kind of things can particularly emerge in the moment that we're in now where it's exciting, but we haven't kind of launched. It's almost an opportunity to be aware of those, of the things that are going to catch us. From your perspectives, what do you think the cautionary tales of circular, circular economy and circularity are going to be?
2: <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: Thanks, Martin. Um, so I think there's a, there's
2: a few things that we need to be conscious of. I don't necessarily think there's any cautionary tales about switching to a circular economy. I think it's absolutely vital and should be done as quickly as possible. I I think probably the only cautionary tale would be not to act quickly enough. Um, I suppose one of the the issues that seems to plague um, all of our, you know, the action that we take on environmental issues um, is that people in poorer socio-economic areas tend to get left behind and end up being the last ones that are still dealing with the residual waste or the toxic chemicals um, or the impacts of environmental degradation. So I think um, while we do need to move forward as quickly as possible, I think we also need to make sure that uh, we do that equitably and that people aren't being left behind to deal with with issues. So I would hate to see developed countries move forward on these issues and, and create ongoing impacts for others. Um, and I suppose also it would be unfortunate if we move forward in silos. Um, I know there's a lot of organisations and councils and cities taking action on circularity um, without necessarily being connected up to others. And there's so, so there's so many different initiatives going on and they're, they're already happening, um, but we need to work out a way to record all of these efforts and to connect those initiatives with other initiatives to make sure that where there's a demand, for example, for 2,000 tonnes of, of um, steel that's coming from another building, that, that, that developer knows where they can go to get that, um, I think it's important that we, we start recording Um, what materials are in our existing building stock and I'm focusing on materials because that's where where I do most of my work But uh, in in building, sorry but um, having that inventory of existing building materials I think is super critical um, for people to access that so that when they need a product they know where to get it uh, and they know what its its qualities are um, what its lifespan is what toxic chemicals are in it, if any um, so that mapping exercise I think will be really important and I suppose roundabout way of saying um, that, I guess, cautionary tale there would be not to act um, in a collaborative manner while we try
1: and solve these, these issues. And, and maybe even, I think your beginning part was about like, it's all talk and no acting as well and being aware of that. How about you, Martin?
4: Um, Thanks, Laura. That's a good segue, um, because I think that's one of the things that concern me the most. It's that um, uh, amazing potential that I think the design community is bringing forward. I think we all feel like we're sort of scratching and trying to get into gear and understanding it's a very complex process, but it feels like it's time to act and it feels like it's getting things over the line. And uh, I think looking, you know, thousands of years, heavy weight, um, looking at the plastic age, uh, uh, don't know, but um, I think it's the, the, the risk is that some of our bright ideas won't make it to fruition. And I think um, it goes back to what I said earlier about engaging very, very early in the process. Um, with the right people, with the right clients, with the right project managers. I don't know if there's any around. We need them too. Um, Because often as architects, we come to the table too late when the business case has been made um, and and there's there's no chance to advocate um, on a large scale. You sort of provide cosmetics sometimes. But there are very good examples. And I guess us being involved in Brickworks was one of those where we had this ambition by the client, by the design group, by all the people involved, and it pushed it along and it got it to a result that is not only net zero but it 's net positive so it's that 's what we call regenerative so I think that's that's um, the the when do you start the process of of changing it and the other the other it's sort of detailed, but I do think that the success of our um, Environmental achievements will be measured by um, uh, getting them across the line, and that means certifying materials at the right time. Um, I mentioned the revival project before, they offer a service where they not only salvage the material but they also store it and then they certify it. So often, the materials that get salvaged have got structural. Um, integrity problems or that it needs to be certified, and that's, that's the, the tiny little piece un- pieces to understand the full cycle of getting them to use. I think that's the, the call to action that brings the action. And
1: Suzette and Kwanji do you have anything to add to that?
3: Um, just that I think it's, it's just following on from what you're saying, it's interesting to just take a step back and think about perspective because we um, we have governments everywhere who have landfill and rubbish collections now, and we know that those landfills are pretty close to full, and there's not going to be not going to be any more. So we're at this point where we've got a, a local government sort of crunching on waste. We've um, we really need a higher level crunching on all sort of large scale projects on reuse, and as you're saying, material data on it to understand what we have, and then we've got our own household level of you know products and waste, and so there really is. It feels like it's coming to a very pointy end very quickly, and that um, we really need to get our shit together because <laughs> we've got to we've got to transition into this. And if we don't, we you know we're left with a whole realm of issues. And you know, in some ways, yeah, it, it's we have to deal with the waste issues, the toxicity issues, and the environmental impacts. And we have to do it now.
0: I wonder. Also, it comes down to. Um each individual's responsibility. We can't really rely on materials and technologies. Technology will never save us. And uh, um, as if we keep consume as we do now, uh, you know the, the UN, uh, UN's sustainable goal, one of them is about responsible consumption. As much as I hate the word consumption, um, it's actually a quite a poignant word, responsible consumption. And uh, how do you actually become each one of us as a designer, as a father, as a daughter, as a, as a, um, a citizen, uh, as a government? How do you become responsible? And I think that, that maybe uh, is quite a critical um, challenge.
1: I think... Um two of the things that I was thinking about in terms of cautionary tale, one you've brought up already, was that we focus a lot on the materials, but not necessarily enough on the process, and that needs to be really thought of as well. But then the other one, um, I guess the in some ways, the curse of sustainable products is that people think it's okay to use more of them because they're like, they're great. So they don't go back to first principles of use less. Do you really need this um, as a starting point rather than just sort of um, skipping through the fields of sustainable products because it's totally fine to use them. So I think I think there's a cautionary tale on that too. Yeah, talk- sorry, sorry, just on that, I, was,
2: I saw a really shocking statistic the other day, which was that Australians... Um, are the third highest consumers of materials per capita in the world? Um, I think we use or we we're, we're responsible for thirty eight tonnes of materials per capita per annum in terms of material consumption compared to an average world average of twelve. And not only that, but we so we're some of the highest material consumers, but we're also using those materials really inefficiently. So per um, ton of material consumed, we are only generating, I think it's about um, these are US numbers, but $1.28, I think it was, US um, per tonne, as opposed to the global average, which is $1.55. Um, so that I think there's obviously a serious issue with the way that we're consuming materials as well.
1: Thank you. Stats always really help a conversation. <laughs> We've talked a lot about problems so far, um, but I'm sure each of you have witnessed solutions as well. So I'd love to hear from each of the panel, a couple, one, but you can go up to three if you've got loads, great. Um, solutions that you're seeing where circularity and circular economy are working. And it can be on a really small scale um, as well as a big scale. So I'd love to hear some examples.
4: I might go first. Uh, we, we were involved in Burwood Brickworks. I mentioned that before. I'm not sure if you've been to um, Burbit Brickworks, but it's a project that we completed and it um, received the Living Building Challenge um, Certificate. So it's, it's, it's uh, one of the most sustainable community and shopping centres in the world. What we did there was um, in the building process, we realised that we collected a lot of formwork. So in the main structure and the concrete that was um, built, there was a lot of formwork. So um, we ended up uh, reusing that formwork on site. So that's, I guess, another aspect of thinking about circularity rather than circling, you know, going from A to B and it's actually already on site. So what can you do with materials that are in the building process. So we ended up using it for um, a feature wall and feature ceiling in the entry from the car park up to the to the um, main congregation space. That is one example. And the other one uh, was the site before we built, there was a, a quarry and then um, it produced bricks. So we ended up finding a house in South Sierra that got demolished and brought them back. And so there's a nice, also, sentimental I guess story about how the the journey of the materials have come back to site and some of it is sprinkled like um, chocolate chips on the facade. There was a bit of an organic organic process to that so there's a bit of free form woven into the process of of reclaiming.
1: I think I'm going to add to Burwood Brickwork because it's one of my personal favourite projects but um, I think up to 80 materials were salvaged um, and used on site and one of, I mean, apart from the circularity, one of the real kind of blessings and gifts of it is the stories that those materials bring. So I, I talk about those bricks all the time, that those bricks were, were made on site, got put into a house and then came back. And that sense of place that that adds, the floorboards that have been recycled, the, um, the benches that are, are in it. And all of those adds, uh, imbues the whole building with a presence that is quite special. And I think um, going on recycled bricks, SBRC, um, which I know you worked on the Sustainable Buildings Research Centre, a living building certified, one of the bricks in there, um, I I know that the team has identified that it was used at least three times based on the different kinds of paints that were in it. Um, So carrying on the story of bricks. But Hannah, where are you seeing some of the... Maybe I'll continue then (laughs) because actually the SBRC is one of my favourite examples
2: of this where a lot of the different materials that were selected tell a story. And um, so there were the recycled bricks, um, but also a lot of recycled timbers and those came from various places um, where they'd previously been used for a different purpose. So in that building, you'll find um, decommissioned parts of a bridge, a railway and telegraph poles that were then used within the building um, and they all look fabulous as well. Um, those sorts of materials stand the test of time and they bring a lot of character, which um, I think is really evident if you if you see the building. Um, but one of my favorites actually from that project was, um, there was one of the, the builders subcontractors working on the building who ended up um, basically getting, Wood from a house that was being torn down, their, their mate's house, um, was being demolished to make way for a new development and they managed to procure some of the timber from this person's house to bring into the building project, which I thought was quite, quite cool and also, I guess, tells the story of um, the more you, uh, I guess, um, communicate your goals and talk about these things, the more kind of synchronicity you find um, in achieving goals like that. Um, And that building had had really ambitious materials and circularity goals as part of its living building challenge certification. Um, And uh, I suppose, so so that's one example, but um, going back to my previous comments, reusing existing buildings still my favourite thing. I love love to see it happening and um, we've got a few examples of that that we're working on at the moment, which is really heartening.
1: I think the story that you've just told now sort of underlines an earlier point that you had around it's lovely that there's these opportunistic moments where you can salvage things, but um, there's no kind of very transparent system where you can see, you know, what's on site, what's being stored, um, and and for for just sort of the everyday person to be able to salvage those things, you have to really be in the right place at the right time, so what's the systemic change that we could, you know, what could come in there that would be a really important game changer, I think, if there was like a, a, you know, a a city-wide resource where you you knew what was in that salvage, so you could plan ahead for your building.
2: It goes back to Martin's previous point about um, taking it right back to the early design stage where buildings need to be designed to be able to be disassembled and when you disassemble it, what do you do with it? You need to have someone ready to take those materials or they'll just end up being stockpiled um, somewhere. So I think they call it asset tagging where they, they tag different ingredients of a building to make sure that you know what the properties of those materials are and how much of the material there is for use. And you could have that all in an inventory somewhere so that people could access that, um, that are building new buildings and know that they have a secure supply of reliable material, which is safe, it's free of chemicals, it still has some useful life left in it um, to have that level of security. Because at the moment, I think there's a lot of people who want to design responsibly, but um, there's a real disconnect in the industry as well.
1: Kwanji, what about you? Where are you seeing circularity happening? Um, I wouldn't
0: call it solution, but I think uh, small but snowballing change is made uh, mostly uh, in schools as an educator. Um, especially recently, the project that I did with K5, um, um, and I've been teaching mycelium-based studio, and from there, students um, now can become entrepreneurial. So, there are students who are now interested in opening uh, mycelium manufacturing company. And there's also students who got a job in a bio uh, design company in London. So, slowly, you see the fruits um, that, that, that is kind of a riping towards something bigger. And and it was, um, it's, so the collaboration, we talked about the collaboration. I think collaboration becomes really important in in um, perhaps working towards a circularity. And I was only able to do that because I met the dream collaborator. She's sitting right here, <laughs> Erna from Cape Five. And an amazing student. Um, when one of the students actually, um, Kenny, who is sitting here, worked on the Mycelium Project, uh, he said that what it was like to working with mycelium, he said, it was like having a pet. You really have to sort of understand, nurture and take care and, and protect and also understand the cat's mind. Um, and so that really touched my heart that in a way, okay, he's not, you know, you learn, the students are learning how to care and how to approach uh, differently from just commercial-oriented um, uh, uh, you know, sleek design that could sell. And so I think that, that education has a, a true sort of uh, opportunity to change. Mm.
1: And I guess with an educator's lens, are you seeing a lot more uh, circularity in those kind of concepts in curriculum now, and sort of students coming through are m- sort of more aware and engaged with that? Yeah.
4: Can you see mycelium also being used in building products? Um, sort of tipping on the other side of the, the commercial side, potentially. But do you see mycelium as, a, as an alternative to other materials?
0: There are architects in Europe that they have built, built pavilions and exhibit out, outside. Mm-hmm. Um, mycelium is naturally water resistant and it floats in the water and fire resistant. So it's a great material as an insulation, as well as the wall tile. Uh, acoustically, it performs really well. So building, why not? I mean, it depends on uh, what ty- the type of building, perhaps. Perhaps, And we were talking about building, actually, um, a, a pavilion for um, hydrogen fuel, actually, um, um, but we're kind of at the brainstorming stage. But that case that is maybe we're not building uh, to last forever, but the building that evolve and evolutionize uh, every month or every year so that parts might be eaten by slugs and ants and butterflies and moths, and then that could be replaced by the new mycelium. Other parts that is supporting the mycelium, so that the building, the whole idea of building. Um, I don't get me wrong. I love these old buildings. Hundreds and hundreds of years old buildings are there. They're really, um, you know, we have to must protect it and we must build things to last. But when uh, you work with mycelium or some other biological materials, that um, we may have to shift, we can shift the thinking and create a completely different experience of the space and products.
3: And I I think following on from um, Guan Zhu's. It was fabulous for K5 to be involved in the mycelium uh, design collaboration with Monash University students and there were some wonderful outcomes there and I think one of the great opportunities there for K5 was to actually be able to collaborate on on how we could see those mycelium products being sold commercially in uh, and fitted out into buildings and so that was one way that we could contribute and assist with the research on that. Um, I think also that we're very conscious of maintaining um, products. When we talk about regenerative products and using waste, We also don't want to use the waste and turn it into something completely different. So, you know, keeping products or waste in a high value state that's already been all of the inputs and all the emissions are already in that product in the state that it is, is a good way to reuse it. So, you know, we work with companies internationally, um, international furniture suppliers that have waste products in their factories and they use them and look at creating products that will be able to use that, such as fabrics, in the existing state of the fabric. So, we don't want to churn it up, we don't want to create it into a different fibre. We want to use it as it is but we'll use and create furniture that's got different coloured furniture fabrics, samples on it or um, fabric involved. Um, and uh, working with other designers that look at design for disassembly and using only timber in a product. So we have some furniture from Finland um, that is made wholly and solely by by timber. There's no screws or no metal components, no plastic components used in it all. It's timber joiners used. And the furniture is delivered flat packed and you assemble it with these timber joiners. You know, And that's a beautiful piece of craftsmanship and a beautiful piece of furniture. And it's like... Well, how do we do this, you know, ongoing in that we don't need plastic necessarily in every product. We don't need steel. We don't need screws. We can actually use old craftsman's techniques to actually build this and design this furniture. Um, And then there's other things like, you know, we've got some products that are made here locally in Australia. And so one of the investigations we're looking at there is how do we actually change out from using stuffing in cushions and so there's an ongoing investigation into using coconut fibre into those cushions in place of you know, man-made fibre and stuffing. So it's, it's looking at what's available locally, what's available regionally and also working with our international you know, long-term collaborators and design companies to understand what are they doing overseas, how can we translate that here and what are our resources locally that we can use.
1: Amazing. I'm going to quote the blackard piece here on your... Um, <laughs> I love their waste isn't waste until you waste it, um, and like yeah, what is the opportunity in that material? Um, yeah, we've got a captive audience here of some wonderful people who are clearly interested in circular and circularity. Um, if you could tell them one thing, or wave a magic wand, or change, you know, one idea that maybe in you know, common misconception about circular economy, what? Well, would that be? And I appreciate that this was not on the prep sheet, so you're just thinking about this now, but you've got this.
3: I'm gonna jump in. I think it's (laughs) conscious consumerism for me. It's, you know, we are so used to just consuming stuff all the time, buying, you know. We don't like things that look old or are scratched, you know, we want everything to look perfect and that's the way we've, you know, particularly designers. Um, and architects, we want things to look like they're brand new, and it don't hasn't don't have to, you know, a din to scratch is a sign of history. It's a sign of it's been well loved and well used. And I think that we, if we can stop and think about what we're buying each time, and you know, is it plastic cups that we're using, and you know, what is what's the packaging involved in, and you know, all those sort of things each time we make a decision with our money or our time or our volunteering, then I think that's highly important, and that's what everyone can do, no matter what you've got.
2: I'll go next if you like. (laughs) Um, And I'll, again, come back to reuse. So I think there's there's a misconception uh, that circularity is all about recycling and minimising waste and separating waste streams, but ultimately the first thing, apart from extending the life of a product, um, is reusing. And um, I think the idea that we don't all need to own a copy of everything, so the sharing economy is going to be hugely important in moving towards circularity, including sharing things like tools and and, um, vehicles and whatever it might be. Um, I think there's a definite shift in public perception about ownership of new things. So i echo your your comments about conscious consumerism, but um, I am starting to see that shift and there's a lot more platforms now where you you can access copies of things, um, you know, sorry, shared shared items rather than owning your own copy. So... um, I think that's a really important part. I think when you try to be healthy and eat healthy,
0: the first thing that you do is check the ingredients. (laughs) And uh, I think that's it, just being conscious about uh, things that you do, things that you buy or things that, um, what's happening around you. I think being conscious probably and being aware is probably the first step, I would say.
4: Um, I think for me it is to engage with whoever is initiating uh, a project, clients, um, really, really early, get all the brain into that earliest initiation of a project and have all the smarts of our collaborators in that room and embrace, um, I guess, the the journey that comes with it and uh, leverage The intelligence that is um possible through that process to the full extent and uh therefore make it possible and not sort of stop halfway or jump in halfway i think that would be an amazing outcome if we started collaborating earlier
1: so start early in the design process and that's often where the biggest opportunities are and also the cheapest way to do it long term and even
4: you know um when you pick a site i think going in that early that, that assessment of a site, that, that thinking, what can be done, what are the resources, what are the stories, what is connecting with country, uh, they're, they're, they're the foundations of a process and, and they're the foundation of a place, I think, and placemaking. Mm.
1: Lovely, thank you. We're gonna move gently now into question time and I will just flag that the lovely Hannah has to catch a flight very soon, so she'll be leaving us in eight minutes. So if anyone has a burning question for Hannah specifically, put your hand up, but otherwise we're gonna open to questions for the panel. Um, Questions, just so you know, are like one or two sentences and end in a question mark, um, rather than a whole big statement. So just be mindful, we wanna get a lot of people's questions in and just be thoughtful about that as you're asking your question, so. Go for it. Oh, thank you.
5: <laughs> thank you. Uh, maybe, Hannah, just like it sounds like you're in discussions with people who are often, like, obviously quite commercially motivated and really kind of hold the power in these situations. How do you go about discussing these issues with them and kind of trying to convince them about all these obviously good things but they may not be on side with?
2: Sure. Um, <clears throat> Yes, so I usually frame all of my suggestions in a commercial manner because I tend to deal more with commercially minded people. Um, I'd love for people to just do circularity because it's the right thing and um, and that's what drives me. But I find that circularity is, has actually become a really compelling argument without um, leaning too heavily on, on people's feelings and... and um, uh, you know, the feeling that you, you might have to do it um, because it's the right thing, because we are running out of resources, and there are quite a few resources that we use every day in our buildings and in other products which are in finite supply. They're not renewable, um, or else they're not rapidly renewable. And I think um, developers are starting to see that there's a risk in that because there's a lack of security in the supply chain, there's supply chain shortages. There's, a move away or has been a move away from local production and we can't necessarily get all of the materials that we need to build, the buildings that we are planning to build. Um, so I think that is beginning to be viewed as a, as a risk. Sorry, I've got a fly on me. Um, as a risk and people are starting to think about the value that exists in building materials that are currently being sent to landfill as waste and thinking about... Um, because there's, a, there's trillions of dollars of economic opportunity in the waste that we're currently sending to landfill. Um, And finally, people are starting to realise that they can make money from it. Um, Not only that, but the landfill costs are rising and we're running, in some cases, out of space to put our waste. So, um, especially with hazardous waste, there tends to be fewer countries willing to accept um, tonnes of hazardous waste onto their soils. So, essentially, there's a lot of commercial arguments that are starting to stack up. And people, you know, that's driving people to start thinking about how we can recover and minimise the amount of waste, and in particular toxic waste that we're producing. Um, Yeah, so it's usually a risk argument.
4: And you mentioned the, the mapping and tracking. I think that's a really critical point because that allows us to make decisions in a quite rational manner, and often when we do, we... As we track carbon footprint, for instance, we start to see the actual financial benefits. Um, and, and I would say that, that that is a good incentive to move forward and also generating an economy on its own, specifying materials that have um, good cap- capacity that, that are green tag or are green labeled, for instance. If, they, if we as, as a design community create a market, they become cheaper. So there's that hurdle to jump, I think. In in with your tools that you use to to um, quantify these things, are there any insights for for us to to take forward? How we can use them more intelligently? How we can be more um, integrated? I don't know. It's a, just a question I was keen to. John,
2: you know of any tools, Laura? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah. I look. I don't. There's there's a few standards and and guidelines around and and rating systems that that start to address these things in small amounts um i don't really know of any good tools there's quite a few mapping exercises going on around the world um quite a few cities have now started pulling together um plans for circularity in the medium to to long term there's a lot of them actually and circular london is is a good example of one that's been around or started was started quite a while ago um but I don't really have good examples of, of tools, just a lot of great examples of initiatives that are already happening and schemes that are starting to be set up to allow for circular economy. I'm not sure if anyone else has come across any good tools for measurement, but I know there are there are exercises going on at the moment to try and figure out what are the metrics we should be using to measure circularity because there's an um, agreement that it needs to be measured before we can sort of monitor improvements effectively, um, which tends to incentivise more people. Um, But I don't think that's really been established um, in a consistent manner yet. Correct me if I'm wrong.
1: (laughs) No, I think you're right. I think there's still a lot of work to be done there. Um, Audience questions, though. (laughs) The back.
4: (laughs)
6: Is that on? Sorry, Martin. I'm going to antagonise you the way I always do. Um, one <laughs> of my favourite questions to ask in this context is, how how do you approach cost? We can all be the best, and we can advocate for a lot of things. But as designers, one of the things that one of the kind of blocks that we are consistently confronted with is cost, and that's not to be negative. Um, I think it's a reality and that's the best way to actually move forward and get things done. So action is the best. So any advice you have for us on how to navigate um, money with our clients it would be really helpful.
1: I'm happy to add something here. I- I find in sustainability, everyone wants to have the cost-benefit analysis, but they just wanna do the cost column and they never do the benefit column. (laughs) Can we please do the benefit column as well? Because the value there is so quantifiable, particularly over time. And as we start bringing in risk factors, supply chain issues, um, it just stacks up more and more. So my, my first tip would be fine, have the cost, but also have the benefit.
4: I think there's two conversations going on at the same time. One is, how is your feasibility built? What's the duration of your feasibility? And different building topologies have different feasibility length. So let's say university precincts often have the luxury of holding an asset for very long, and therefore their lifetime assessment and their feasibility plays out much better, and so there's, there's opportunity in that space. So encouragement to review the length of feasibility, so I think that could be an opportunity. Um, looking at, the, let's say, if a building performs much better, it doesn't use as much electricity, surely the costs of running it should outweigh the cost of buying the infrastructure, which is the up cost, uh, upfront cost problem. Um, so that's, that's one way of looking at it.
0: I'm a researcher, I'm not a <laughs> I don't have any business gene. <laughs> So I wouldn't really have to talk.
4: The other side of the coin um, would be to, to look at generating our own economy in a way. So um, um, NH has produced a new material guide and we're starting to track um, in, in our schedules um, the cost of the material. So uh, working out the uplift, let's say, green concrete is 30% more expensive. So by the time you get... Um, getting a bit technical here, but to get to innovation, Uh, where a contractor takes over and they're starting to substitute products, you're actually able to say, um, well, we've got a a green tech material that costs the same amount of money and use that. And that's a very easy argument. It won't always be possible, but in a lot of cases, there are already very good products in the market. And then specifying them more will bring the cost down as well.
0: I guess we can benchmark on a few successful companies like, for example, Interface. It's from states. It's a global uh, carpet company that uh, 90% of their products, uh, 90% of whole uh, running and manufacturing and everything is actually renewable and recyclable And uh, because they work with this uh, fishing nets used fishing nets to create carpets that are modularized and then you don't have to reap the whole carpet from the floor but just the tiles of the where uh, you know the, the to fix the carpet and that company is really the uh, the person who owned the company built based on the biophilia the biophilic ideas and sustainability and uh, that and there are uh, i'm sure that there are uh, successful companies like that that we can maybe benchmark and learn from them how they actually manage and they become so successful not just uh, in in uh, uh, creating circular economy
3: but but also the the um uh, finance wise i'm going to jump on top of that and just Uh, say that I think in regards to cost evaluations, we need to not just look at sort of cost and sort of this very narrow version of benefit, but break that benefit down. You know, is it designed for disassembly? Is it using renewable materials? Is it You know, is it something that is going to have a longevity and is going to be repairable at the end of the day? You know, is there going to be components made for that? You know, there's a whole range of benefits that we don't even tend to break down. We just sort of lump it all together and then we put the cost against it. And I think that until we start breaking that down and understanding all of those benefits and laying them out for a client, we really can't, you know, we can't blame them for just saying, oh, well, it costs less and, you know, there's a minor benefit here. But, you know, we need to lay out the benefits. And I suppose until we stop having um, green certifications for how good a product is and we start having your shit product certifications that this product is really bad, um, <laughs> I don't know, maybe we need to flip the whole rating system over its head and say you rate it at how bad it is and if you use it, you're using the worst of the worst of the worst, you know. What is it? What is going to policy, create change? My mark's gone off but
6: I think it's policy change. Lead by policy. Totally makes the conversation around cost a little bit easier.
1: Yeah, I, and I think it's both and. Yeah. Um, Hannah, I think you need to, um, you. to leave us. So thank you so much for being here. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. But in the meantime, we'll continue with audience questions.
7: Yes. Hi, everybody. Great discussion. Thank you. I'm Chris Buntine with uh, Northrop Consulting Engineers. I'm wondering if you've seen any good models of bringing um, suppliers of circular goods and services into the design process much earlier and engaging the project team. I'm not just talking about the architects. I'm talking about all of those design professionals that are making decisions around materials, but tend to kick those decisions to the contractor and the subcontractor. And they're quite nervous about making specific decisions around material. So we're losing a lot of opportunity because they don't wanna get involved in those decisions. And I'm having that struggle on many projects right now. And suppliers are really keen to be part of that conversation, but they're not invited to the table mostly.
4: Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to answer. We, um, we worked on... Um with um, Dulux, for instance, uh, and there was there was the uh, it was again. I think it comes back to your comment about policy. If there is policy, if there is a, a framework, if there is a, a, a rating. And that holds people accountable. Uh, there is a drive to to achieve certain outcomes. So um, we we're able at both Brickworks to get Dulux to actually change their formula because it was it had a red-listed um, um, chemical in there, and so they managed to change it. And now they have that product in their range. So it made it back into the market. That's that's. It doesn't always work that way, but that was a good example of where it worked. There's other examples of, um, not necessarily with materials, but uh, with large supermarket chains like Woolworths, where we talked about getting uh, uh, fridge doors on the fridges. And it was a legal journey. Um, We fortunately didn't have to fight the battle, but our client did. And uh, Stephen Joy uh, deserves the credit. He managed to get it through and now they are talking about it as the best thing that could ever happen because it saves a lot of energy it's sort of common sense but it's it's taking that cycle and going through i think i keep coming back to that certification process that is very boring but it's that's the that's the piece that needs to get over the line and that's why a lot of products that we keep referencing in Europe or somewhere else, they don't work in Australia. They need to be certified, and we've got to find a way to certify them here and not complain about it.
7: But can, we, can we scale these solutions maybe by putting your project up there and crowdsourcing so suppliers can come in and say, I've got a solution for that. I can locate a material for that because there's a lot of examples here that are sort of one-offs. They're from projects from some yeah. time ago. We're not scaling fast enough. It's not having enough impact. And so we really need ways to get to mainstream this. I think mean, we, we need new models of collaboration.
4: Yeah, I agree.
1: I think you're talking a bit there about integrated design. Chris, I know, I know um, one of the things that um, I'd like to see more of is projects that do do that, talk about it and talk about the benefits and normalize that as a process instead of just sort of you know, business as usual. Yeah.
3: May need a specialist in your office on, on circularity there. <laughs>
6: It was one of the last questions of the entire conference, and it was a facade um, contractor, and they actually said, we have an issue with opacity, with suppliers of particular components in China. So there's no transparency of certain manufacturing of those layers. And, and he said, you know, we're at, we don't even know where to go anymore. There's no transparency for us. We can't even meet some of the requirements that people are asking of us for our materials. Um, so this goes beyond Australia. This is a, this is extending globally and what we're allowing in, into the country. And it's the same, you know, if you go to Ikea and buy a, a kitchen from there, we all know it's cheap and it's fine, but it's full of formaldehyde. Whereas this, the, the kitchens manufactured in Australia aren't because... Well, from Australian melamine that don't have formaldehyde in them because of our policy. So... You know, it's happening at all levels, but it was interesting hearing his despair asking that question.
1: Thank you. I think we have a question over here.
5: Hi, Shal. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, thanks, uh, thanks to the panel for maintaining the semblance of coherency and a very warm day. My brain has got fully out the window. Um, it feels to me that I, I really hope that, the, that this classic age is considered a 200-year or 200-year like split like, of sheer insanity. When we look back, where humanity looks back and go away from weird. let's not do that again. Um, but there are so many lessons in architecture, in secular life, in um, what immateriality that I, that we can actually be pulling from times before. And I think that we talked about secularity, is, it's a new thing, but it really isn't humans have been doing circularity for about thousands of years and so I wonder, I was really interested in your example about the traditional um, wow words, uh, traditional like timber manufacturing or like you, and then applying that with a modern twist or whatever. So I'm wondering if you have any other examples of that learning from past to, to push the circular future.
1: I can add to that because I'm a total history nerd. Um, if you just look at let's go back to the Romans. What have the Romans ever done for us? One of the things is built for disassembly. Um, So you hardly ever find full Roman villas or structures. And that's because the bricks are in a thousand different other buildings. Um, You might find the foundations, but you won't find anything else. And and that's because they were just experts at it, building in a way that was easy to disassemble and move those um, buildings.
3: I think also our experience um, at K5 working with the international companies is that in Northern Europe, they're so much more advanced in the manufacturing processes and uh, the cleanliness and you know the way they have no, little or no waste in their factories. So everything is used. I mean... Um, there's an example of uh, you know offcuts or materials being used and made into pallets, fuel pallets, and then being given out to the local hospitals and elderly to fuel to heat their homes. You know, it's everything is is used, is saved, is given a purpose. And if it's not something that's you know it's not necessarily sold on, it's actually shared with the local community. And the investment into the local community is huge. And I think that's something that we have a lot to learn from. You know, we very recent um, rephrase that Australians in the last 200 years have um, taken a very European or maybe English approach to things and we really need to look back to ancestors here and how they use products and made products and we also need to learn from other cultures. I mean we just dismiss other cultures. We may think that they're poor or they haven't been developed more than we are but in fact they're doing a hell of a lot more for the society and for the environment than what we're currently doing so we've got a lot to learn.
0: I was going to say the same thing that you're absolutely right. We have been doing this for thousands and centuries. And uh, if you even, you know, starting from agriculture, it's about, I guess, understanding ecology and then the connectedness of it. And uh, the connection is not just about the physical connection, but also spiritual connection that, that Asians um, believe in, and also aboriginals in North America, aboriginals in Australia, New Zealand, um, that, that it's nothing is everything is not just about the material, but it is about um, the more uh, uh, corporeal sort of side of it that... Um, that we believe in and then there must be something that we can actually learn from
1: all right so you thought you were going to just be asking us questions but actually we're going to ask you a question so i'd love you to turn to somebody around you maybe somebody new that you've never met before maybe somebody that works with you and I'd love you to just spend a couple of minutes discussing you know, where are you seeing good examples of circularity, circular economy right now in, in big or small ways. And then I'll give you a couple of minutes and then we'd love to hear back um, from, all of, not from all of you, from a couple of you with some good examples that you think everyone else should know about. So um, enjoy your conversations. We'll chat to you soon. I'm Gonna take this opportunity to start talking now that the music's faded out. Thank you. Um, I'd love to hear from some of the audience, um, particularly if there's anything you talked about that you think other people should know, a great resource, a great example, um, we'd love to hear from you. Or did you just all have a chat at a lovely social? <laughs> Which is fine too. <laughs> uh,
5: oh, that's loud. Um, just regarding some resources that I, you mentioned earlier. Um, I thought the Letty, um, based in UK, they've got this um, network of. I'm just reading the what, what they say on the website because I can't really explain it that well. But it's basically um, like design professionals and um, professionals in the consultancy industry, construction industry. They like work together. Um, they've got these brochures, carbon um, primers that that they're called, um, which sort of guides um, and gives people a general idea. It's like a Two pager. It's really nicely graphically designed, and you can tell, you know, um, in one one page, what goes into a building, what's the cycle, what's the disassembly process, what happens with the building after it's used, what happens at the start. So that's one resource. Um, but also another one. Um, it's by Melbourne Uni. It's you might have heard of the Epic database. It's sort of like an embodied carbon um, spreadsheet, and it's got. Sort of, um, it's a lot of numbers, and I don't really know numbers that well. I'm a designer, so but there's that one resource.
1: Yeah. Anyone else have something they'd like to add? We might get you a microphone. Oh, we just bought an office where the facade was falling over, and most people would have demolished. And um, we just repaired. <laughs>
3: so, I mean, it's totally repaired, and basically out of very simple things that we and our own labour. So, um, and Clara was saying that in Switzerland, she's been working in um, Switzerland, and she said they take great care of the um, materials in buildings in Switzerland because they have enough money. <laughs> <laughs>
1: There's another one at the back there. Great. This one's a product I
6: haven't used in a project yet, but I'm excited and I want someone else to do it. It's called Saveboard. It's made from Tetra packaging and you can use it in lieu of plasterboard or carcass material. If you're into the aesthetic, it can just be like exposed. But at the end of the life, you just send it back to the plant and they shred it, remelt it and then use it again and they just opened their plant in Australia.
1: I'm gonna take this opportunity to give a total shout out to one of the things that we run as well, picking up on that group's um, discussion around transparency, um, is the DECLARE label. So DECLARE is a nutrition label for building materials. It tells you where something comes from, exactly what's in it, including red list ingredients, like does it have formaldehyde in, and maybe you should avoid that, and then what happens to it end of life, and that transparency process is a very key like first step to all of this Um, one of the questions we often get um, around you know products that have got certifications or um, is when issues come up and actually when things get identified and get spoken about that's an example of transparency working because something has been picked up and is going to be rectified. The, the things that I'm most worried about is when everything is hunky dory and nothing goes wrong ever. Um, so, yeah, uh, unashamed shout out to Declare as a tool. All right, team, we might start to slowly wrap tonight up. So, of course, we have a couple of thank yous. Um, I'd love to thank the wonderful team behind the bar and also our lovely audio guy who, I have no idea what your name is, but you've been great. Hi, <laughs> thank you so much to the team at M Pavilion for hosting us tonight. Thanks for being a great audience and for having such lovely, thoughtful questions. Thank you to the fantastic panel. Um, Thank you so much for your time in the preparation and your thoughtfulness around the questions and sharing your expertise um, so generously with this audience. To NH Architecture for putting this panel together, thank you so much for the time and effort that went into that. Amazing. I feel like, actually, general round of applause just for all of these fantastic people. (laughs) Perhaps. A thousand years from now, the people looking back on our time and trying to understand who we are and what we were about by looking at our material culture will struggle. Perhaps they'll struggle because they can't find anything. And that's because our structures have been built for disassembly, our our things have been used over and over again and our biomaterials have gone back into thriving ecosystem perhaps the most ambitious thing that we can do to make our mark in this time is to leave no mark at all thank you you. you're listening to an mpavilion podcast conversations about design and the world we live in for more visit our archive at
2: mpavilion.org
1: and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.